Welcome back, everybody. This is episode number two of You Make Me Sick, a podcast dedicated to pathogenic microorganisms, a little bit of their history, exactly what makes them special. Uh, I just want to thank everybody for listening to the first episode. Uh, it is a work in progress. I am taking feedback, so hopefully this episode, at least from a production standpoint, sounds a little bit better. I want to thank uh, Dave the Machine for giving me some advice just to try and actually make my microphone possibly sound a little bit better. But uh, as always, any feedback is uh, welcomed. Uh, thank you guys again for listening. So in episode two, we're going to look at a different microorganism than we did in the first episode. first episode was uh, based on a microorganism that was well known, uh, killed hundreds of millions of people. This next microorganism is actually very rare, uh, and it is a prion or prion diseases. So prion diseases, uh, they're associated with the prion protein. Uh, it's mainly found in the brain, but can be found all over the body. Uh, but since the brain is a predominant tissue where it's found, it affects that the most. It's a neurodegenerative disease. Per the CDC, prions are classified as, quote, abnormal pathogenic agents that are transmissible and able to induce abnormal folding of specific normal cellular proteins called prion proteins, that are found most abundantly in the brain. Normally these prion proteins don't cause any kind of damage in the brain. There's actually speculation that they may help protect the brain even though there's not a lot of data to support that. What we do know is that when these proteins aggregate, they clump together, become misshapen, uh, clog up the brain tissue, and cause these neurodegenerative diseases that have long-term effects. Uh, Because they can be transmissible, these prion diseases are actually considered an infectious disease. Uh, These abnormally shaped and aggregated prion proteins uh, cause what are called TSEs, or transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. Uh, These progressive disorders are distinguished by their long incubation periods, sometimes up to 30 to 50 years. Uh, They have characteristic spongiform changes in the brain, which affects neuronal activity. And then it also has a failure to induce an inflammatory response. Typically, this is something you would see with proteins, uh, even ones that aren't prions that are in the body. If there is something that the body considers an invader, uh, we see it with bacteria, with viruses, you have this immune response to it, inflammatory response, helps to clear out uh, any kind of foreign pathogen that might be there. With prions, though, they actually don't have any kind of response in the body, which is why they're able to kind of have this long incubation period and why the body itself isn't able to attack it. So while there's only one prion protein that's known to exist in mammals, uh, the pathogenic prions do appear to represent a, just a wider phenomenon called amyloidosis. So amyloid proteins uh, can affect any kind of tissue or organ in the body, uh, not always from prions, but it's essentially when you get these protein aggregates that are misshapen, uh, they build up in different tissues in the body, uh, it can be the heart, the liver, Depends where it is. Uh, Over time, though, they get to a point where the body's not able to function the way it's supposed to because these proteins have actually uh, compromised the cells and compromised the organ when it gets to be an abundant amount. Um, So at the basic level, these proteins, essentially, think of it this way, a protein is supposed to shape one way or be shaped in one way, fold one way, uh, starting really small, and they build up, and these proteins are pretty much the building blocks of all of our cells. So a specific protein is supposed to shape to form your heart, your liver, uh, your skin, anything. So obviously if they become misshapen and 
Uh, almost different from a cancer where a cell multiplies. This is actually the protein uh, being misfolded or misshapen. It's not able to actually conform to its proper cell dimensions and then the organ or the tissue itself just becomes compromised. With prions, we see this in the brain. Uh, prions are most abundant in the brain and that's what causes these TSEs. So before we go on to define the different types of pathogenic prions that affect humans, it should be noted that uh, in the animal kingdom, there are other prion diseases. Uh, there is one called scrappy. There is chronic wasting disease, which is seen in a lot of deer or game animals. Uh, there's also feline spongiform encephalopathy, mink encephalopathy, and one that's widely known uh, was in the news about 25, 30 years ago, uh, and actually we'll talk about a little more at length. We won't talk about these other animal-associated prion diseases at all, but bovine spongiform encephalopathy, or mad cow disease, which did have a direct effect uh, on causing prion disease in humans. So in humans, there are three primary TSEs. Uh, there is Crushfeld-Jacob disease, there is a variant of Crutchfeldt-Jacob disease, or Crutchfeldt-Jacob, depending on who you talk to. Uh, that's where the mad cow actually comes into play. Uh, and then there's Kuru, which actually has a pretty dark etiology, and we'll also talk about that. Uh, I do want to talk about uh, two subtypes of the Crutchfeldt-Jacob disease, which is the most common type of TSE seen in humans. Uh, there are two subtypes. So with Crutchfeldt-Jacob disease, 85% of them uh, are actually the transmissible types of disease. It's something that uh, it's either the etiology is unknown or it came from some kind of transplantation. With the other 15%, these are actually genetic. So the two genetic variations of Crutchfeldt-Jacob disease are Gerstmann-Straussler-Schunker syndrome and fatal familial insomnia. With Gerstmann-Straussler-Schenker syndrome, or GSS, this is a genetically acquired disease. Uh, prions are actually normally formed by the PRNP gene. In GSS, you see a misformation or a mutation of the PRNP gene, and it actually kind of creates a little haywire reaction. These prion proteins end up being misfolded, create these plaques in the brain which end up causing a toxicity and these neurodegenerative disorders uh, as well as signs and symptoms. The most common symptom is usually progressive loss of coordination, presents as an unsteady gait, difficulty walking, increased clumsiness. As the disease progresses though other symptoms become more apparent, uh, progresses to a dementia, difficulty with thought and cognition, memory, language, behavior. These are all seen as signs and symptoms of GSS. Uh, with GSS, it uh, also has a progressive loss of nerve cells. Most commonly happens to people in their 40s and 50s. With all these TSEs, there's a long incubation period for them, except for the variant of Crutchfeld-Jacob. We'll talk about that a little more in depth in a few minutes here. There is no cure for any of these as well. Should have noted at the beginning, these are all fatal. It's over a longer period of time that they progress, but once progression gets to a certain point, it happens rather quickly. GSS isn't contagious in the traditional sense. It can be transmitted, but that's only through injection of brain matter that has already been infected. And it's pretty rare, so there's not an exact estimate, but uh, it's probably between 1 to 10 in 100 million people will actually get this GSS variation of CJD, or Crutchfeldt-Jakob disease. The second subtype of uh, CJD 
is familial fatal insomnia, which, like the name says, uh, starts with the inability to actually sleep. So that's the first characteristic seen in most people as a symptom. It starts gradually with just difficulty sleeping. Eventually ends up being uh, almost getting no sleep at all. It leads to significant physical and mental deterioration. Uh, affected individuals also start to develop dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. That's the part of the nervous system that controls involuntary autonomic body processes such as your temperature regulation, sweating, uh, eventually the breathing, regulation of heart rate. So these people have all kinds of issues once it progresses to a certain point. Uh, and this all depends on the part of the autonomic system that's actually affected, where it is in the brain, and the severity of the disease. With the fatal familial insomnia, uh, this is also caused by abnormal variant of the PRNP gene, much like the GSS. Uh, sometimes it does occur randomly, though, without any kind of issues or having any kind of genetic issues with this gene. Uh, this is also classified as sporadic fatal insomnia, or SFI. Uh, characteristic symptoms of this uh, progressive insomnia, like I mentioned before, the beginning of just not being able to sleep usually starts at about middle age. It can start earlier or later in life. I think there was one case where it started with somebody who was a teenager and then somebody in their 70s. Typically, though, uh, with most of these diseases, it starts uh, mid to late life, 40s, 50s. Uh, at first, you find just uh, kind of mild insomnia. Then it becomes progressively worse, and then the individual gets very, very little sleep. Uh, it can worsen over months to day, uh, days to months. Uh, when sleep is actually achieved, it seems like these people have really vivid dreams, though, probably just from the lack of sleep. There's actually a, anybody who's interested in dreams and sleeping uh, would just like to recommend listening to Matthew Walker. Has a podcast about sleep for all of our sleep-deprived people who think they might have FFI or just have crappy sleeping habits. Uh, check out Matt Walker's podcast. It's called the Matthew Walker Podcast. He's a neuroscientist and sleep specialist. Uh, he's actually got uh, pretty good advice. Anyway, completely off subject. But uh, So with uh, FFI, uh, symptoms that happen after the inability to sleep, uh, all problems you might you know think would happen with somebody who's unable to sleep. There's progressive dementia, problems with thought, cognition, memory, language, behavior. Uh, at first, these are a little bit subtle, but eventually get to the point where they're very noticeable. People have forgetfulness, inattentiveness, problems with concentration, and even speech problems. And then eventually hallucinations can occur. Uh, some individuals have issues with their sight as well, double vision, or kind of jerky eye movements called instamagnus. Or in, sorry, I always get this wrong. Enstagmus. Uh, and that's where your eyes will actually deviate left to right really quickly. Uh, I've seen it before on someone who's overdosed on Benadryl. It's very strange. Uh, difficulty with swallowing, called dysphagia, and slurred speech also happen. Uh, people have ataxia, which are abnormal movements. And then uh, people also uh, have Parkinsonian-like symptoms with the twitching, the inability to move and correct their own movements. So those two happen more rarely than the uh, common Crushfeld-Jakob disease. Uh, with the FFI, once again, the average age is like 45 to 50 years old. And as with the GSS and regular CJD, it's always fatal. Um, so we'll start to talk about the most common form of human prion disease. That's the Jack Crushfeld-Jakob disease. So this makes up about 
85% of prion diseases that are seen or diagnosed. Uh, this prion disease is not genetic in nature. Uh, it's important to note that uh, this is different as well than the variant CJD, which is caused by mad cow, or not, not necessarily mad cow, but consuming products from a animal that has mad cow disease. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. So with classic CJD, uh, recognized in the early 1920s, not really diagnosed till about 1930. The most common, common form of this uh, occurs sporadically. Uh, it's just caused by the spontaneous transformation of that prion protein in the brain. Uh, causes those plaques to build up, uh, affects neuronal activity. Uh, sporadic disease happens worldwide, uh, including the United States but very, very rare. So it's uh, roughly about one to two cases per million population per year. Uh, it has been noted though that rates uh, have increased gradually over the last 30 years or so, but it's hard to say if this is accurate or not because it's not something that's always easily diagnosed. Uh, diagnosis has to be done usually with brain biopsy, which happens, you can do it when someone's alive, but it's typically done during autopsy. So with CJD, why it's considered to be a transmissible disease is that there have been about 500 patients that have been reported to have had this iatrogenic transmission of the disease via either contaminated human growth hormone, uh, dura mater or corneal grafts, antecedent neurosurgery with some kind of dura mater implantation, so essentially pieces of the brain that have been placed uh, or other neurosurgical equipment that may have been contaminated with it. So of the six cases though that have been linked to contaminated equipment, four of those were associated with neurosurgical instruments and two with stereotactic EEG depth electrodes. So if you're getting an EEG or brain waves measured, there are certain electrodes that they can place on your head and they do have some that will actually go a little bit deeper than others. All these equipment related cases though occurred before routine implementation of sterilization procedures and better decontamination of all equipment used as well as surgical procedure in and of itself has changed greatly. So diagnosis for these types of TSEs with the CJD, GSS, and the FFI, uh, they kind of vary a little bit. They're a little bit different. Uh, obviously with the genetic disorders, the genetic markers that would kind of indicate the PRP protein has been compromised can be found. Uh, with these other cases of CJD, though, it requires excuse me, neuropathologic and immunodiagnostic testing of the brain tissue, which you can get at biopsy or at autopsy, as mentioned before. Uh, sometimes there's the presence of a specific protein called a 1433 protein in cerebrospinal fluid that can be used. Uh, there's also a test called a Western blot test that can confirm a protease-resistant type of PRP. And that, alongside uh, EEG, abnormal EEG findings, are usually used to diagnose. Uh, there are other symptoms that oftentimes we'll see that helps to kind of at least get to a diagnosis. The dementia, the other abnormalities that you see with neurological conditions, such as the myoclonus, which is the jerking kind of movements. Visual or cerebrellar signs, uh, pyramidal and extrapyramidal movements, which if anybody's seen them, sometimes certain drugs can cause these, certain antidepressants and antipsychotics can cause these, and that's kind of involuntary movement of the limbs. Sometimes you'll see the tongue move back and forth, uh, kind of unnerving when you actually do see it. But these can also be signs of CJD. 
so there is another type of CJD called familial CJD, and that's kind of defined as a patient uh, who has a diagnosis or probable CJD, uh, but also have a first-degree relative who has been diagnosed with CJD or a neuropsychiatric disorder plus that specific PRP gene mutation. So that's the most common type of TSE, or spongiform encephalopathy, that we see. Uh, one that isn't as common anymore, that wasn't even around uh, until about 35 years ago, or at least hadn't been diagnosed, is the variant CJD. And that's kind of what we'll talk about next. This is the one that most people think about, I think, when they hear of Jakob, uh, Crutchfield-Jakob disease. Uh, this is the one that's actually caused by mad cow disease. Uh, if anybody who was alive back in the uh, 90s probably remembers the news, especially in England, that's where most of these cases happened. Uh, people getting sick and getting these kind of neurological disorders from eating what was found to be tainted meat. Uh, this meat came from cows, and these cows had actually eaten feed that contained either brains from other cows or sheep and their entrails. And it was found that these prion diseases were actually transmitted via the meat to these people from the cows. Variant CJD, it's different CJD in many aspects. Uh, the median age of death was actually 28 years old for this compared to what you'd see with, you know, 50, 60 years old with the uh, typical CJD. The duration of illness was about 13 to 14 months, and the diagnostic criteria, such as the presence of any kind of diagnostic signs or imaging or the presence of florid plaques, which is different than what you'd see with the normal misshapen prions uh, in the typical CJD. It should also be noted there were three cases that were found to have come from people who received blood donations from asymptomatic donors who actually had this variant CJD as well. Uh, since the variant CJD was first reported in 1996, there have been a total of 231 patients with the disease from 12 different countries. As of March 6th in 2017, so about five years ago, so there's still maybe some outstanding, outstanding data that I haven't been able to find. Uh, variant CJD cases have been uh, from the following countries. There were mostly in the UK, there were 178, there were 27 from France, 5 from Spain, 4 from Ireland. Four from the U.S., which of these four cases in the U.S., none of them actually came from any meat that was eaten in the U.S. Uh, there were three that they could trace back to, I think, Saudi Arabia and the U.K., and there was one where they couldn't exactly trace where the initial contact came in or where the person had initially eaten the meat, but it was not in the United States. Uh, three in the Netherlands, three in Italy, two in Portugal, two in Canada, and one each from Japan and Saudi Arabia and Taiwan. Um, as stated before, in the United States, the FDA actually does a pretty good job about regulating how meat is handled, how cows are fed. Uh, very, very unlikely a case like this could happen unless somebody was raising their own cattle and decided to feed it meat uh, brains from infected animals, and, and that's how they would get it. Uh, but as far as if you go to the grocery store, that's one of the things the FDA actually does right, is they're able to have a pretty good reach as far as preventing any kind of disease from being spread from the meat that we actually eat. Um, with regard to Europe and their regulation as far as how meat is handled, uh, in the last 20 or 30 years or so they've been much better about it. There was data that uh, from 1986 to I think 1999, 97% of all these variant CJD cases came out of the UK. 
Uh, but since 2000, they've actually done a much better job. The European Union Commission on Food Safety and Animal Welfare strengthened their requirements as far as animal feed, uh, the human food chains, uh, how food is inspected. And that's why we've seen such a drop off in the occurrence, so much that uh, it's extremely, extremely rare to have any kind of a variant CJD case now anywhere worldwide. Uh, it did take the Europe a while, though, to kind of catch up. This is something the United States, I think, has been pretty good about. Uh, even Canada, where they did have, I think, one case, uh, has been much better. And as far as importing and exporting beef, uh, the United States has done a very good job with that. As far as the people who had the blood transfusions contaminated with the variant CJD agents, obviously now uh, blood transfusions are all screened for all kinds of different uh Probably not in the U.S. I don't think it'll be for variant CJD, but here we have very good screening measures. In the U.K., they have screening measures uh, put in place, so very rare to get any kind of disease now from blood transfusions. It's almost impossible. Um, I'll never say anything is impossible, but very, very difficult. Uh, so the CDC actually monitors the trends of current CJD cases in the U.S., uh, they use several surveillance mechanisms uh, as a routine basis. They kind of review national multiple cause of death data taken, uh, look at death certificates, look at neurological data, uh, the National Center for Health Statistics, and they try to be as accurate as possible. Because this is so rare, the uh, diagnose, I think a lot of these diagnoses probably come post-mortem from biopsies, uh, if they're unsure about it. Um, and even I think if you have a diagnosis of this prior to death, Unless it's 100% definitive from a biopsy, they may do an autopsy and biopsy it just to make sure they're correct. So currently the CDC works with uh, selected state departments. Uh, they do enhanced CJD surveillance projects and education programs regarding the importance of autopsy um, to both surveillance and diagnosis of the CJD. As noted before, there is no cure for CJD. Uh, inevitably, it is deadly. Uh, you will die from it. But the incubation periods, because they last so long, sometimes these are misdiagnosed. Uh, you may have people who end up dying of other causes who actually would be positive for CJD, but just never get to the point where it becomes a neurological issue with them. Uh, these other cases where you have the severe neurological disorders, uh, I think the CJD, if they're unable to find a obvious cause for it, is something that becomes a definite uh, possible diagnosis for people if they're able to get the criteria to diagnose them. With regard to prevention of CJD, uh, the most important thing for the transmissible forms is any kind of neurosurgery or neurobiopsy, anything dealing with neurological equipment. Uh, if you have somebody who is suspected of CJD, or even those who aren't, I'm pretty sure they're all, the sterilization techniques are all the same now. The CDC has pretty strict requirements for it. Uh, usually it's using 1N-sodium hydroxide, and they also do uh, heat displacement in autoclave, which is 121 degrees Celsius for about 30 minutes. That'll kill just about anything, and will actually kill these uh, TSEs as well. Uh, these prion diseases uh, apparently don't do so well when exposed to extreme chemicals and uh, heat. So now that we talked about uh, CJD, and it's kind of subtypes as well as variant CJD, we're going to talk about the third type of prion disease. Uh, this one is called Kuru. So Kuru has a much darker ideology, uh, the way it was discovered and actually how it was transmitted. It was actually Kuru that began the study of these types of prion diseases. Uh, 
Its highest prevalence was in the 1950s and 1960s, but it was believed to have been around for decades prior to that. It was uh, really just in the highlands of New Guinea. The four people, who were the indigenous people of that area, actually contracted the disease by performing cannibalistic rituals on corpses during their funerary rites. Uh, in a quote from an uh, anthropologist and Nobel Prize recipient for his work on prions, Carlton Gadudesk, he noted, quote, When a body was considered for human consumption, none of it was discarded except the bitter gallbladder. In the deceased's old sugarcane garden, maternal kin dismembered the corpse with a bamboo knife and stone axe. They first removed the hands and feet, then cut open the arms and legs to strip the muscles. Opening the chest and belly, they avoided rupturing the gallbladder, whose bitter content would ruin the meat. After severing the head, they fractured the skull to remove the brain. Meat, viscera, and brain were all eaten. Marrow was sucked from cracked bones, and sometimes the pulverized bones themselves were cooked and eaten with green vegetables. In North Four, but not in South, the corpse was buried for several days, then exhumed and eaten when the flesh had ripened and the maggots could be cooked as a separate delicacy. So in the late 1930s and 40s, uh, there were a lot of gold miners and Protestant missionaries and government officials who kind of became familiar with the presence of this endocannibalism in that area. Uh, but it wasn't until the 1950s that Kuru was actually observed by a pair of anthropologists and then later the aforementioned uh, Carlton Gajusek, uh, who with the aid of a veterinarian in the U.S. actually pointed out the similarities between these people who had Kuru and the scrappy disease, which is the prion disease in animals. And this was kind of the impetus for uh, these TSE and prion research that helped Gajusek actually win a Nobel Prize and Really, uh, this discovery kind of uh, escalated research in this area, and especially this type of neurodegenerative disorder. So with these, uh, these four tribes people, it was found that the most often affected were actually the women and the children, uh, who were the ones who were the one most commonly participating in these rituals where they would eat the brains and the head. It was also thought that the brain and the head were the more undesirable parts of the body to eat. Uh, hence the tribesmen would end up eating the, the, the meatier parts, and these were kind of uh, the leftovers, I guess. Um, and it was also thought that the same instruments that were used to dismember the body, to dismember the brain, were also used to prepare everyday food. So you can imagine this would end up getting passed around. You have little brain bits on your, uh, your axe, and then when you're you know, cutting the fish up the next day, it gets passed to that, you eat that, and then you have kuru. So the name Kuru actually means to shiver or trembling in fear in this native four language. Uh, the, symptoms, the symptoms of the disease include muscle twitching, you get loss of coordination, difficulty walking, involuntary movements, uh, behavioral and mood changes, dementia, difficulty eating, and this would lead to malnutrition, which was often uh, the cause of death with these people. Kuru actually happens in three stages. Uh, usually it's preceded by a headache and joint pain. And then in that first stage, the person exhibits some loss of bodily control, uh, difficulty balancing, maintaining posture. Uh, in the second stage, they call it the sedentary stage, the person isn't able to walk anymore. They get body tremors, uh, involuntary jerks, other movements begin to occur. Uh, you can see the parallel between Kuru and the other types of TSEs where they have these uh, neuromuscular issues. 
in the third stage, uh, the person is bedridden, they're incontinent, uh, which means they can't control their bowel or bladder. They lose the ability to speak. Uh, they kind of have these dementia or behavioral changes. Uh, they seem unconcerned about their health, though, which is always an issue. And then uh, starvation and malnutrition in that third stage, accompanied by difficulty eating and swallowing altogether. And it's these secondary symptoms that really cause death. Uh, and a lot of people end up dying from pneumonia, uh, more so than anything else. So, as stated before, Kuru exceptionally rare, uh, and it's only contracted by eating the infected brain tissue or coming into contact with sores of Kuru prions. So it's an uh, incubation period similar to that of the other TSEs. It can be as long as 30 years, but once you uh, start to see these symptoms, within about a year, uh, the person ends up dying. Uh, thankfully, though, uh, cases have pretty much gone away since cannibalism has ceased to exist. Uh, it's now discouraged and has been for a while now in a lot of these nations uh, that cannibalism is not a proper way to uh, respect your dead, I guess. But who are we to tell people what to do, right? Uh, anyway, um, today, Kuru, it's rarely diagnosed. Uh, symptoms are similar to Kuru, may have, you know, other neurological disorders, the spongiform disease. So somebody who looks like they may have Kuru, who is in this area, may actually just have a regular CJD. Um, as with all these TSEs, like I said, there is no cure. Uh, it's always fatal. Really, the only treatment for people who have any kind of TSE is just kind of supportive care. Uh, make sure they're comfortable and try and get them their nutrition. And uh, it's essentially it. A lot of hospice, I would imagine, towards the end as well. So now that we've taken a look at these uh, wonderful TSEs, uh, very rare, very strange pathogens. Definitely, probably not... Uh, not like anything we're going to talk about in the future. I would think we're probably going to stick more towards a bacterial viral aspect. I just kind of always thought the prions were pretty interesting. It's not something you hear a lot about, uh, especially with the mad cow thing. I think people had really no idea or a lot of people just aren't sure, you know, how that was passed and what actually caused the neurological decline in people. Uh, so hopefully this uh, helps to give a little insight into that. Um, with that being said, as we're going to do every episode, uh, we're going to take a look at the death toll for these diseases. Unlike the first episode where the plague killed hundreds of millions, it's been really difficult to figure out exactly how many people these TSEs have killed. Uh, especially since, you know, recognition, the 1950s and 1960s is all I have to go on as far as getting records or any kind of data, and even that has been hard to track. So I kind of... What I did is, uh, according to the CDC, we took their average of 1.5 cases per million people. Um, it would be even difficult to trace this back over a millennia because the population of the world has changed, so it's per million people. Um, but the world's population, obviously, to figure out how many have died each year from it, it would take a lot of extrapolation. It's more math than I want to do. If somebody wants to figure it out and let me know, go for it. But uh, what I'm going to do is just look over the last 100 years, and we'll average out the population over the last 100 years, uh, or not even 100 years, over the last 90 years, which is about 1930, um, which is when we start to actually really get the diagnosis and discovery of these TSEs, so more about, more like 92 years. So what I'm going to do is, according to the NIH, there's been an average of about 279 deaths annually from CJD, and I'm going to exclude variant CJD. I'm going to exclude uh, 
the Kuru as well, because one, they're just so rare that I don't think they would matter as far as our numbers go, and there are cases that probably haven't been diagnosed or just aren't diagnosed now because they don't exist. So, that being said, uh, National Institutes of Health is where I get this information from. Uh, they think there have been 279 deaths annually from crutchfield yakov disease. So if we take this, multiply it by its years of discovery, which is 1930, we get the number 25,686. If we again use the, uh, the average height of a human, which is 5 foot 5 inches tall, we get uh, 139,035 feet or 26.3 miles. So a little over a marathon here uh, of human bodies. So, as we'll do every week, we're going to see how close we can get to the moon if we stack these people on top of each other, uh, how many Empire State buildings we have, and how far we could uh, get around the Earth if we wrap them around the circumference. So with that 26.3 miles, if we were trying to get to the moon, we would only get 0.011% of the way there. So long ways to go to get to the moon. Um, we could, though, get 111.3 Empire State Buildings, which is, uh, you know, no small feat. But if we tried to wrap around the Earth, we'd only get about 0.11% uh, of the way there. So, like I said, not a huge death toll, and that just speaks to the, the rarity of this illness, and at least of the known cases that we have. Uh, so very rare, very hard to get. This isn't something you have to be worried about contracting. If you do have somebody in your family who's had a history of it, then it might be concerning. But other than that, probably not going to happen. So uh, that kind of wraps it up for this episode on prions. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Hope the sound quality is better. I'm going to keep working to try and figure out what works best here. Uh, welcome any feedback, um, please. Uh, also, I can be found now on iTunes, Spotify, Odyssey, and come on Stitcher. So uh, feel free to listen there. And then uh, pod at gmail.com is my email address. The best way to get a hold of me for any kind of comments or any kind of feedback. Uh, thank everybody again for listening, and uh, tune in next time. And if you're in the UK, probably don't eat the beef.